Well, good morning once again. If you will open your Bibles up to chapter 27 of Acts, we are getting near the end of this book, and I'm thankful that we have uh, been in the book, and every chapter has been a blessing to learn from. And um, we have one teacher whose name is Jesus, and he is faithful to uh, lead us through a journey of a book and to glean all that we can um, that we need for each week. And I pray that once again the Lord may be pleased to do that. I um, want to encourage you to um, share the sermon. We try to get it out, and I sent some emails out in relation to trying to use what technology we can to get that out. And um, so we have, um, I'm utilizing Substack again as it's been the most conductive tool for our use. And I want to tell you just a little bit on that is that not only will it put out the recording, but then there's a transcription of the entire message. And so um, some neat tools that are being used. And just so, because technology is always changing, we set up a link tree which is provided full function for nonprofits. And that link tree, we just put all the up-to-date links. So if we change anything or do something else now, it all shows up there. And that way, if you want a sermon, you go there. So if it's on Substack, it'll be linked there. If it's on uh, some other site, it'll be linked there. And so it's a one-stop area to be able to get those messages. Of course, um, as I tell everybody, the preaching of God's word belongs in the context of his church. So it's always um, a secondary and supplementary thing to just listen to a sermon. But to be in the context of his church and to share in the full benefits of the gathering of the body of Christ, nothing replaces that, nothing can do that. Mm -hmm. But there are times in which it may be very useful for you to be able to stay in tune and in touch with your church family when you're not able to be there, especially during times when maybe sickness or times where you have to be away. And so we try to accommodate that where we can. But the necessity is the gathering of of God's people. And so I hope you'll utilize that. And um, if you need help with any of that, always just let us know. Um, It's always something that we want to make sure is truly a blessing to you. All right, so in chapter 27, we are... Um, going to pick up and we're going to read this chapter. It is a, a definitely a, a longer one, but the uh, uh, the time spent there, I believe, will be worth it. Let's begin. Chapter 27 of Acts, beginning in verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. And the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea, along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy, and put us on board. 
We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off of Salmoni. Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. And since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast, note the fast related to the Day of Atonement, was already over. Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, literally a typhoon, hurricane-type wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kota, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. And after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing they would run aground on, on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. And since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison, on, jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Man, you should have listened to me. And not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. And yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Mm. And he said, do not be afraid. Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Mm. So take heart. Take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island, and when the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. And so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms a little farther, and they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. And as day was about to dawn, 
Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. And therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. When he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. And we were in all 276 persons in the ship. When they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. And so they cast off the anchors and they left them in the sea at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. And then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. Striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on a piece of the ship. So it was that all were brought safely to land. All were brought safely to land. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word. Amen. Amen. Well, I've called the message that very phrase. All were brought safely to land. And what you find here is the leading up to the finale of the book, you're seeing that exactly what the book has been about from the beginning, it continues to be reaffirmed all the way to the very end, and that it is an adequate testimony that God indeed will conquer the world with his gospel. And here we have a great depiction of 276, every person on the ship being saved. And not only is it just a physical salvation, but it is with spiritual consequence as well. For the word persons is the word psyche, which is also in the Latin anime. And this means souls. Why would Luke indicate that there were 276 souls in the ship? If you do not want us to consider that these men not only were physically benefiting, but they were spiritually benefiting from being Mm. with Paul. Mm. The world is often those who look at the spiritual or the religious or those whom they think to be holy as men and women of safety. For example, it's it's often said that when one is on a plane, they look around and they see a certain person that they may know they see as a holy man that they seem to relax a little bit more, thinking, well, I'm in safer hands now if he's on the plane. And so you get this idea, right? Paul becomes a safe anchor in the midst of this boat throughout. But it wasn't Paul. It was the fact that God had promised that he would deliver his people. He saved these 276 persons, I believe, because... He wants to, again, re-underscore the message as Luke is telling the details of this particular sea voyage. One of the 
if not the most magnificent accounts of a sea voyage with adventure that's ever been written. It, it just blows away the literature of even Homer and the Odyssey and all of the picturesque voyages that have been painted and written. John Newton, who was on uh, boats and was very familiar with them, who wrote Amazing Grace, just stood astounded by this account. And even wrote a, a hymn um, that actually goes with this particular chapter. And so it's also one of the most, um, in regards to literature, one of the most verifiable aspects of the New Testament in regards to these events happening. And so it's a very significant portion of literature to the whole world. To Christians, it's a great treasure because we see here the hope that God can save them all and that God actually did save them all here. Now, what implication that gives is not that God's going to save every person in the world because we know that's not true. There are people that reject God and they die and they perish and they spend an eternity in hell, as the scripture tells us, not because we have feelings one way or another on the matter, but because scripture tells us that wrath is due to man who has sinned against God. And when a heart has never been turned to God, they go on hating God. And therefore, their eternity, their forever, their ongoing existence, which doesn't end here, goes on having to continually pay for the sin debt that they owe with no hope of redemption. So we know that people are going to perish that don't receive Christ alone for salvation. And we would be people to be most pitied if this is all it was. If this was the world, if this all all it was, if we stand at the side of gravestones and we say that life ends there, but life doesn't end there. Life doesn't end there for any person saved or lost. It goes on. There's a resurrection of the dead for the just and the unjust. One will come and judge the living and the dead who is at the right hand of the Father now. But we have this assurance. And it's the assurance that Acts 27 gives us. This assurance is it not one for whom the Father chose will ever perish? Mm -hmm. We have this assurance that those for whom He foreknew, He brings them all the way to glory. And there is not a chance whatsoever that they will die and perish in hell. You take away doctrines like that, you take away the joy of assurance as a Christian believer. You take away the certainty that God desires people to have who trust in His Son. You see, a lot of people, they save Psalm 23 for when they go to the graveside as if it's about death. Psalm 23 is about life. It's about the Lord is our shepherd now. He takes us through the valleys of the shadow of death. He's not talking about death, he's talking about the shadows of it. The times when it comes near. Times when it is fearful upon us. He takes us through all those things. And we are in the house of the Lord forever, not just here, but we will go on being part of God's church, either triumphant in heaven or we remain here as a militant church on earth. Whatever the case is, we are those who belong to the Lord. In fact, the words that Paul uses, and he says when an angel appeared to him there in 33, he said, to whom I belong, the God to whom I belong. Scholars indicate 
that that word which we know more familiar as ecclesia, speaking of the church, comes from the word kara, karakakos, which means those who belong to God. Those who belong to, literally, the Lord. Because you get the word kurios. Kurios is the word Lord. So you might hear churches called the kirk. That's kind of the idea. It's that the church is the possession of the Lord. And so he indicates here he belongs to the Lord. Well, we, if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we belong to the Lord. And his church that's called out from this world, it's not, really, it's not just merely that he called them out. He called them out so that they belong to him. And they're in union with his son, the Lord. And so all that is done to the church will be done unto the Lord, his possession. Now, that's all by way of introduction in the sense of where this lands in the scope of the book and why it's here. It's continuing to give us an adequate testimony that God will take care of his people. Why is it important? Well, because the background is Matthew 24, 14. The end in which they are anticipating, the end for which Paul has been preaching against especially the rulers that's going to come upon the world in those days. And he's warning them of imminent judgment. He's warning them to turn and repent of their sins so that they might be saved both physically and spiritually. But the promise and the preparation for his church is that he will deliver them. Their redemption draws near. The gospel we proclaim to the whole world and then the end will come. And when the end comes, those who belong to the Lord, all of them, are going to be saved. We have this assurance, the book is replete with it all the way through, but especially here in this magnificent picture of 276 persons in the ship. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood as doing what I think some have an error done to this text, and that is we are not allegorizing any of it. There's no room for allegory in this. We're not going to turn the four anchors into something crazy. It has been done. We're going to endeavor to look at what the text says and what it communicates in the plain meaning of it. But, but for sure, it's if, for entertainment, we're not here for entertainment. For entertainment purposes, you can go look up some of those. And I think, um, I think I was listening to Alistair Begg talk on this particular text. He was sharing a little bit about it. He almost went too long on that because then I started thinking, are you preaching that, Alistair? <laughs> and, um, but he turned it around. I can't remember for sure if it was him. I must remember listening to several this week and reading a lot. So, but the point is, is that the four anchors are just four anchors. They represent the just the attempt for man to try to save themselves on a ship. Nothing more, nothing less. Now, I'm calling this the by the name uh, the phrase. It says, "All were brought safely to land." It gives us assurance that God's going to save all of those of His elect. He's going to save every one of them. Not one of them will perish. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been chosen in Him. And there will be never a doubt in this life, all the way to the end of your life, or even to the end of the world, that you will perish. And there will never have to be a doubt that your children or grandchildren who trust in the Lord would perish. Or generations that follow them would ever perish that are chosen in Him. God will save all His people. And we, we take heart in this. And we take heart in it because of stories and accounts like this that Luke has indeed given us. But the glory of all this is the all. He saves them all. 
And I want you to meditate on a few things. I've put the text into four parts. And the first is, notice the kind of people he saves. 276. What kind of people were these? What kind of people would God ensure all make it safely to the land? And we find this if we begin in the chapter um, and throughout the chapter um, doing something a little more unusual to just pick up on at least five descriptions of these men and women, you know, men I'm assuming all, but people that he saves. And so these foremost, the kind of people he saves are, are obviously people who are sinners and, and they are sinners that actually are responsible for putting Paul and each other in danger. Now, if you just consider this for a moment, that Paul advises them, and he says, I perceive the voyage will be with injury and much loss, and not only of the cargo of the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion, who normally is a character of health, we can't be too hard on him, because... His job in some sense is to do this. But he paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, we see the majority decided to put out to sea from there and chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix Trust me, it's not Phoenix here, okay? So some be thinking, no, they're in Phoenix, no, Arizona. No, it's not. It's Phoenix there, harbor of Crete. Crete's that island where it was written to Titus. Facing both southwest and northwest, spend the winter there. So what do we have here? The kind of people he saved were people actually responsible for putting the whole ship in danger. For what you read ahead. You read ahead that... They got to a point where they had reason to fear, violently storm-tossed, and dealing with major, major danger in regards to their ship and their lives. And if it's you and me, right, we're not signing people up to be saved who end up jeopardizing our lives. In fact, you know, in our human nature, we often will be inclined to eject some people that should say that are endangering our lives. Jonah, right? People on the boat, get him over sea. Throw him out. It's jeopardizing our lives. We ourselves may wish to volunteer because we feel we're jeopardizing people's lives. But God saves all these people who are jeopardizing their own lives and the lives of those on the ship. That's the kind of God we have. Now, let me ask you a question, hypothetically. Who would you rather have be in control? Who gets saved? The best human being on earth who still loves his life more than any other? Or God, who saves people that jeopardize everybody around them? And doesn't it give us a lesson also of the cause of why we are to suffer in this world together with those who in their immaturity 
and in their cantankerousness and in their ways oftentimes do put our spiritual and physical lives in jeopardy because of their foolish attention to the wrong things. And if we're ever going to become something like Jesus Christ, we're going to be people willing to put up with the inconveniences, the difficulties of relationships, the difficulties of growth, because we're being shaped in the image of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lays down His life for people like this. Human flesh says they would deserve to die because they put everyone else in danger in their own lives also. Jesus would say He would die for them. He saves them all. Think about this. He didn't have to save these people. His word would have been just as solid, just as sure. The doctrine of election would be just as as steady. If he caused 5, 10, 15, or all 275 beside Paul to fall over the boat. The only one that he had to save by his own word was Paul. But he saved these men. The kind of men, the kind of men that put everybody else's life in jeopardy. That's the kind of God we have. And if we didn't have that kind of God, none of us would be saved. So that's the first thing. That's the kind of all that we have. There's a second. um, And and let me not skip over. The majority decided. (laughs) The majority that all were paying attention. The majority of the people on this boat did not deserve to be saved, but God saved them. It's an amazing thing. But let's look at the second thing about the kind of people. We see, um, I've noted, that these are those kind of people that are looking for safety that's brought about by their own doing in their own hands. They're looking to their own hands to still secure their salvation. This is the kind of people that he saves. Notice verse 17, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. So I'm bringing out here, they were fearing they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and they were driven along. And notice in verse 19, on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard. I mean, things are bad when you throw out the ability to be able to get food. You're throwing out everything. Why? Because this is a hopeless situation. But they still thought with their own hands they could preserve their lives. They still thought by what they did they could be saved. Howbeit, it was mostly focused physical here, but the lesson's there. You see it. They still thought they could keep their lives. And that's the kind of people God saves. People that think by their own hands they could save their lives. I mean, think about it. He could say, well, you think you can save yourself? Good luck with that. And he lets them perish. But he doesn't. He saves those kind of people. He saves those people who trusted in their own strength. And I I just think it's astounding because he didn't have to save any of them. They 
Or as Calvin says, um, they were the stink of the ship. I love the way he puts that. He puts it in Latin, which I'm sure sounded much better. He, they, they trusted in, as he said, ad humana media, which means to human means, not divine. They trusted not in ad deus media, divine means. They trusted in ad humana media, which is human means. And the question for our lives is always, are we trusting in human means or are we trusting in divine means? And then we might even make everybody feel absolutely lousy when we actually admit we're trusting far too much in human means. And we go out of here trying to find more human means to get ourselves feeling better about ourselves. Or we actually realize the gospel says he saves people who actually think and have thought they can save themselves. Wasn't Peter who said, by no means, Lord. Will I ever deny you? These are the disciples, one after another, were trusting again and again in their hands to deliver them and to keep Jesus from facing a cross. Wasn't it Peter that took, I'm not trying to pick on Peter, but he's out there. He's the first one to be able to grab hold of, and he goes and cuts the ear off of that one who came to arrest Jesus. So you get the point. The idea is that these men, all the way to the very end, were trying to do it with these hands. But these hands don't save but these hands save sinners who are still trying to hold on with all their might to everything they can to save themselves. I mean, what can explain it? All of a sudden, that people come to a knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. They don't come to that knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ after they've got it all right. God makes those dead men alive in the midst of their pursuit and dependence on themselves. He saves sinners. These are the kind of people of the all 276 souls on the ship he saved. There's a third, and we go quickly, more quickly, is they were those who were unable to perceive grace even when it was right before their face. Paul was there. An angel appeared to him. An angel to whom he, he says, the angel of the God to whom he belongs, whom he worships, and he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. I mean, this is amazing. He tells them he has granted all of them to Paul. Which makes me think there's even more that happens by the end of this. So take heart, man, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. Well, if you read on, if you read on, they're still trying to save themselves. They can't see the grace of God right before their face. There is such a darkness and such a cloud before them. And we've, we read about earlier, they could not see anything at one point. No navigation. No ability to navigate at all. They didn't have the, the tools 
that we would have today to navigate on a boat. The stars are blacked out for them. There's no ability to know where to go. They're completely in a hopeless situation. They're throwing everything overboard. And their last attempt is they take not one, not two, not three, but four anchors. And they put everything they possibly can of that day's technology into the sea to keep the boat from going in a dangerous direction. All four dropped. But not even those anchors could keep them. And they could not see the grace of God right before them. That the anchors were not the things that would save them, but it would be the grace of God. And what did they pray for? All kinds of people pray. What did they pray for? Well, there's a lot of things they could have prayed for. They certainly could have prayed to God for mercy. But they just prayed that the day would come. The result for them, even in the midst of this, you would think they're going to awaken up to what Paul has said. They didn't listen to him before, and by now they surely should listen to him. No. What do they do? Well, they kind of act like they're doing something noble. And again, we don't want to make any divisions between um, sailors and soldiers or Army, Navy or any of that, but, but it's made here. It says the soldiers, the soldiers are here depicted as we see those that down the road here are wanting to kill even the prisoners. I mean, they were really messing up. The sailors, they were cowards. They're trying to escape. So the Bible goes ahead and put both sailor and soldier under the same sin. They're, they're sinners. Some are cowards and some are killers. And we have to realize here that these sailors are seeking to escape from the ship and they lowered the ship's boat into the sea, notice, under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. So here they are. They, they know it's wrong. But they're pretending. They're pretending to trust. But what they're really doing is trusting in themselves. And so it is in the average church everywhere in America. There's a bunch of people showing up pretending to trust. And all the while, they're already planning on ways that they're going to preserve their own souls that has nothing to do with receiving the Word of God in the Lord's Day. They're still depending on their own strength. They care nothing of what the preacher is saying. They care nothing of what the Word of God actually says saves souls. They don't act upon it. That which they hear they don't obey. Their lives are not built on rock. Every day of the week, they're living in a different way and all under pretense. They carry out religious functions. But yet, that's the kind of people God saves. And that good news. You see, man will go to the point and say, They're going to hell. Jesus says they're not going to hell. I'm going to save them. I'm going to lay my life down on a cross for people like that. That under pretense, you know how it is. I mean, you've probably had moments where you're sitting there and you're trying to act godly. But all the while, you've got plan B in the pocket. You're acting like 
you're 100% in and you've got like, hey, if this doesn't work out, i got this and this and this and this. And it's all pretense. It's all pretend because you're not trusting 100% of the Lord. And on any day we don't. And if the Gospel required that we did 100%, if the Gospel required for you to be saved, to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if that was the Gospel... No human being on earth would ever be saved. He saves people who even under pretense are dropping anchors over the side trying to look like they trust the Lord. He saves sinners like that. That's what it conveys. And then there's a, another thing He does. He saves people even after all that they've been through, all they've experienced, all they've benefited from by being around the godly. He saves people who forget what God has done right before their eyes. He saves people who not only forget what God has done, but are completely unthankful. And we find that in the very end. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away. You think after all of that, shouldn't they have known? Shouldn't they have remembered? Shouldn't they have learned? Absolutely, they should have. But he saved them all. Even the ones who are unthankful, ungrateful, and who forget. I mean, that's good news. I mean, if I'm coming into a church and I'm, I'm coming in and I'm coming in because I'm feeling the weight of my sin and all the mistakes I've made and all the things I've forgotten and I think about all the times of pretense before God when I'm trying to act godly and at the same time the truth is I'm really trusting still in something of my own flesh. If I came into a church and I began to, to, to just remember the ways in which I have sought to look to my own hands to preserve my own safety. If I have been coming into a church and, uh, and I thought about all the times I maybe even put other people in danger, maybe even in cases where people's lives, people's um, well-being was, was injured because of my own mistakes, my own difficulties, I would be crushed under the weight of all that when a preacher got up and said something along the lines of do better, think harder, be more grateful. Get this thing right. And try to push me down the aisle and push me up to the front and make some type of a confession that's still trusting in myself and not trusting in God. It would be of absolutely no worth in actually changing my heart. I would remain a man lost, perishing in hell if I die on that given day. I don't need that type of gospel. I need a gospel that saves people like this. And you do too. And we ought to not ever tolerate something that is proclaimed throughout any church, in any home, in any place that's depicting anything less than this marvelous, glorious grace of Almighty God that saves sinners. Notice they were not saved by their hands, what they brought. They were not saved. And this is really the second aspect of what I want to get across. They were not saved by their politics. They weren't saved by democracy. That's what we see when it says the majority decided. Yeah, that didn't work out. 
and never will. You cannot be saved by politics. You cannot be saved by human reason. You cannot be saved by philosophy. You cannot be saved by your own strength. You can only be saved by one who is able to save and keep you and present you blameless before glory and the glory of God in heaven. You can only be saved by one who exists above you and who rules over all. You can only be saved by putting total trust in Jesus Christ. And the only way that trust is going to come, as we've learned, is not going to be something that flows out of us. It's going to be something that flowed down out of heaven in an incarnate Lord who became flesh for us. And the power of God existed before us on earth, not because we understand it or saw him as somebody who was worth even looking at. He was marred beyond recognition. People turned their faces away from him, becoming sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. God saved sinners by Jesus' glorious grace and his grace alone. When we think of Newton, who admired this chapter, you can wonder not only did he admire it because of the sea voyage, he admired it because of the grace. I mean, just the magnificent grace. He saves sinners like this. He doesn't save them the way that they want to be saved. He saves them by something that actually does save them, by mm. his son. Mm. So we learn that, that. But what were they saved from? Okay, physically speaking, they're saved from darkness in verse 20. They're saved from lack of strength in verses 33 and 34. Right? They're, they're, they're fasting. They're getting weakened by all their religious duties. They're getting, they're getting weak because they won't take food. It's the Day of Atonement, Yah, yah, uh, yah uh, Purim, Purim, I mean. And it's, it's this festival. Well, they seem to go beyond the festival and they're not eating. And it seems they're not eating because religiously they really believe somehow this might actually get the attention, maybe in their minds of the gods or something divine, and that it might keep them from perishing. And they're still trusting. And so they're weakening their own flesh by their religious duties. They're in darkness. They're saved out of darkness. They're saved from their lack of strength. And let me, just, let me just take a moment to meditate on that. Out of darkness, verse 20, you see, neither sun nor stars appeared many days. No small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. I mean, I don't think it becomes any more clear. All hope's lost. Everything's being thrown over, even the ability to get food. And I think of nothing less than a man named Luther who's in a storm who cries out and prays to St. Anne a lot of people don't really pick up on that. He didn't even pray to God. He was still under the, the darkness of super irrigation. And that is that which he would look to and look to a saint who would have more works in her to give something of him or to be able to save him. He wasn't even looking to God. If, if God saved people that got all that right, no reformation. No Protestant Reformation. No church even existing today. This wouldn't even be here. 
But because after darkness came light, because of the gospel that came to a man like that, that in his imperfection, looking to the wrong things, but yet in his fear and in his journey, seeking sincerely to know a God of love, true love, not as the world loves, but as true love, sacrificially. He wanted to know that there was a God actually who loved him like the gospel conveys in grace. And he saved Luther out of darkness, didn't he? And anybody that knows the grace of God, you know he saved you out of darkness. Total hopelessness of salvation. He saves people out of that. He saves people out of lack of strength. I wrote down um, when I was studying this in Romans 5. And I note this. In, in chapter 5, verse 6, while we were still weak, chapter 5, verse 8, while we were still sinners. Chapter 5, verse 10. While we were enemies. It just simply doesn't stop at Acts 27. It's all the way through the doctrine, Old and New Testament, all the way through the Bible. This is the people God saves. He saved them having no strength. And He saved them from destruction. In verses 41 through 44, they still could have been destroyed. Some could have been drowned. Every opportunity was for this to fail. But it didn't fail. And what kind of message do you think Luke is conveying to a first century audience that in just a few years is going to face a complete devastation of the temple and of the land and scattering of the saints all over the place? What do you think Luke wants them to know? He wants them to know that God will save all His people even in the most difficult, dark, awful, weak in their bodies and facing destruction sort of times, Luke wants them to know that he will save them out of all that. And that's got to embolden some courage, doesn't it? And I think we're living in times where we get very, very much discouraged and we think, is this thing ever, can we even make it through this? Can our kids make it through this? Can our, can our grandchildren make it through this? Yeah, because of the gospel. Yeah. You, want to, you want to give your family, your friends, your church brothers and sisters something that emboldens them in the midst of these times, you need the gospel. Not a man who's telling people to do better But somebody who understands it's the mercy of God that has made us all his people and saves us in these times where we lack strength, we lack the willpower, we lack the ability, we lack even times when we, even, we forget the grace of God. Just as much a Christian in those times as we are at the top of our game. Now, so they weren't saved by certain things. They, they were those who were saved by something. And we've been saying it over and over again. But I want to get specific. How were they exactly saved? And I want to think on Paul. Mm. Paul the Apostle. I think it's Eric Alexander who picks out two things here. He says he had... He had a complete confidence in God's word and a full consecration to God's will. And both 
were exemplary. Think about Paul is not he's not afraid for some reason. He's confident. He's confident, obviously, because he has a revelation from the Lord through an angel who has promised him. He's already been told in chapter 22 that he will go to Rome. But the whole thing was, is he trusted it would come to pass just as it was told him. And we see that all the true saints of the Bible are the same kind of character. They're trusting just as it had been told them. And there on that boat was one man who trusted in God's Word and it would be coming to pass just as it would told him. And if you have just one there that can, can proclaim that and it can remind people of that, then the whole body can be benefited even when there are those on the boat who are in every sense putting everyone else in danger. Because the gospel is more powerful than the vices of men or Satan. That's how powerful the preaching of the gospel is. It lifts up the downcast like Greatheart in Pilgrim's Progress. Seeing that it is its job and its duty to take the one who is down there in the slough of despond and lift them up with the promises of Almighty God. That's the job of the preacher. To lift up those downcasts. To remind them of the good news. To remind them that God came and died for sinners just like that. In that condition, in that state, He saves. So Paul's there and he trusts in the absolute certainty of the Word of God. But it's not that he just trusts in what God says. He is obedient to it and he consecrates himself completely to the will of God and acts in accordance with it. And so we find that no man is fit to exhort, as Calvin says, but he who is himself an example of constancy and fortitude. Mm. This man was one who would write to Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out by God, is useful for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, and if a man of God is equipped this way thoroughly, equipped and competent for every good work, so it is for the whole church that follows in the same manner. And so it is when we're talking about this man, this apostle and his teaching, that will be tangibly responsible for pointing people to this salvation and for ultimately bringing this salvation by the means of the fact that he was there. This man who was promised, trusted in the promise, and the people benefited around him. And he continued to obey the Lord. And we find that he taught them in verse 10. They didn't listen. He reproved them in verses 23 through 26. He corrected them in verse 31. And in the very end, he trained them in righteousness in verse 36. And it says... At some point, they listened, right? They were all encouraged. It'd be a tough job to encourage some folks, right? 276 people on a boat, soldiers and sailors. Some that their character is to kill, the others the character to be cowards and act under pretense. And all of them are encouraged to the point where they actually acted on it and they took the food. 
And they, in taking that food, what happened? Somewhere in their heart of hearts, they knew deep down it wasn't the anchors, it wasn't the hands, it wasn't the democracy, it wasn't their reason, it was none other than what God was saying through Paul. It was Jesus Christ. Mm. And they ate. Mm. When David lost his child, and they came to him and they said, your child has died. He had been praying and asking God to spare and his child dies. And he gets up and he takes food and they say, what do you mean by this? And he says, well, there's nothing more I can do of it. And so he took food and strength and I won't be able to I, he won't be able to come to me anymore, but I'll go to him. The strength of God provided that he was able to trust God's character. And know he would see his child again. These men, for whatever reason, their heart had to be turned at least to stop trusting in religious ceremony. And they had to start trusting in the righteousness that comes from God, at least for a moment. And that doesn't mean that all of them were steadily confident saved. We don't know. But Luke's painting the picture of something extraordinary. And it's to convey to us a testimony of how good God is to us. I think, generally speaking, in all the storms of life, as bad as it could ever get, as difficult as it may seem, as dark as it may be presented to us, that God remains Savior of His people and He lets none, absolutely none whatsoever perish. And the shepherd's psalm is not merely so that we have something to encourage a family at the grave. The shepherd's psalm is to encourage the living on the way to heaven. Mm. And so I encourage you today, I hope, in the sense that God would lift up your downcast hearts if you're there. He would remind you of His tremendous grace. He would bring you near to Himself and would show you just as He had saved these. He'll save any who put their trust in the Lord. In John, we see 6.39 not one will be lost. In John 17, 12, we have a Lord who prays for us and intercedes for us. He prayed for Peter, even though Satan wanted to sift him as wheat. And we have this assurance, not only will he save us, and if we believe that he has saved us, he also will make sure we make it all the way home. Because he'll pray for us. He rules. And if he is not at the right hand of God on David's throne and he is seated and ruling, then none of this will be able to be possible. If he is not alive and risen, none of this will be able to be possible. Because he could at most save you to a certain point. But if he is alive, he saves to the uttermost. If he is alive, he intercedes all the way to the end. And he keeps the devil from condemning us and even from any other condemnation to come against us. So that it is written well, that nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. He lives forever to make intercession for us. Amen. Let's Amen. stand together for prayer. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word and all that you have done in our lives. 
in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our dark times, in the midst of our pretense, in the midst of our trust in democracy, in the midst of our trust in our own hands, while we were weak, while we were rebellious, while we were unthankful, Lord, your mercy has come down in the person of Jesus Christ who became flesh and became like us and became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We can only glory and just enjoy this gift you've given us because you awakened our eyes to see that we are not our own personal saviors, but we have one who saves and saves us and brings us all the way home. Thank you, Father, for leaving, leaving us with the Holy Spirit so that we are not orphans and giving us, Lord, your word so we are not ignorant and giving us the astounding reminders of your love so we never fully despair. Though we may be shipwrecked, we do not run aground towards full despair. We are most encouraged by this gospel, and we give you thanks for it. And I give you thanks personally for the privilege once again to proclaim it. Thank you, Father. And now it is as we go to this table and we go to this which represents the body of our Lord and the blood of our Lord. Lord, may it be respectfully, reverently, and seriously taken that indeed this represents what Christ has done for us. And that you may spiritually strengthen your people by this ordained emblem, that we may wear it this day as those who belong to you by grace. And may it be that you would assemble in this place committed followers of Jesus Christ who gladly place their name on the role of this church and who serve you as humble, godly servants who never forget the mercy they have been given by being part of the body of Christ, belonging to you alone. Amen. Amen. Amen.